It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Have you seen these videos of the New York subway stations? It's just incredible. The videos are all over social media. They're everywhere. I mean, there was huge rainstorms in New York City, and the tunnels got flooded, and the stations got flooded, and the entrances to some of these stations got flooded. And you see these, you know, handmade videos by somebody, you know, shot on a cell phone of, like, this is one woman, and she's carrying her bag up high. The water is up to her hips, and she's wading through it just to try to get into the station so she can get on a friggin' train and go home. It's just unbelievable. Maybe we need an infrastructure bill to do something about this. Look, this is a subject close to my heart because I took the New York subways for years and years and years and years. And, you know, most of it is a system that's well over 100 years old, uh, that is often prone to problems like this. But I have never remember seeing any flooding, anything like this. Hey, when I was growing up, the th- problem with going to the stations is they were so hot in the summer. And the trains were not air-conditioned either. It was really sort of like a hellhole. I mean, the service has gotten certainly better uh, since that time. But the, the flooding of these tunnels, I mean, and you would think they would say, People would say, ah, I'm not going in there. It's gross. It's dirty. It's disgusting. I'm not going to, you know, have my entire pants soaked or my dress soaked. I'll just take a bus or a taxi or something or find an Uber. Now, I understand for a lot of people that's an expense they don't want to take on. But, man, incredible video. New Yorkers are tough, boy. They are tough. They survive conditions that would cause rioting in most other cities. Hey, it's Friday. Hope you have a good weekend. Coming up, we are getting ready for Media Buzz Sunday morning at 11 Eastern. A lot to cover on that show. Some of it we'll talk about here. Some of it you've already gotten an advanced peek at, but I'm glad to have you along. Uh, A couple things I want to touch on before we get down to business. Toyota has just caved to pressure. This is actually a media story in my view. So Toyota, like a lot of big companies, you know, gives political donations to members of Congress and candidates for Congress and other offices. So Toyota, part of the contributions from the Japanese-based car company, uh, went to Republicans who voted against certifying the Electoral College results uh, back when, you know, of course, it led to the January 6th riot. And that's not all the contributions. It was some of them. And there was a whole spate of media stories that said, this is terrible. How can Toyota do this? This is disgusting. This is disgraceful. And my feeling is I'm not taking a position on whether Toyota should or should not give money to certain Republicans um, who took a stance that certainly the liberals and Democrats and even some other Republicans think was awful, that they should have just accepted the fact that Joe Biden won the election. But the media coverage by some of these left-leaning outlets, you know, was just treated this as if private companies have no right to donate money to whoever they so choose, that this was an outrage, that, that you know, they should be shot. It just, you know, was so one-sided, and that led to a lot of pressure. So now Toyota is changing its stance. It's caving in to the pressure. Uh, spokesman telling, uh, putting out a statement saying that while the vast majority of its 2021 donations went to Democrats and Republicans who supported certifying the 2020 election, 
The company understands that the PAC decision to support select members of Congress who contested the results troubled some stakeholders. We are actively listening to our stakeholders, and at this time, we have decided to stop contributing to those members of Congress who contested the certification and so forth and so on. Well, I mean, with all this talk about stakeholders and we're listening, what happened is they got beat up. They got beat up by the media and also by the Lincoln Project, which ran a video, and I guess this happened the day before this announcement, um, uh, just absolutely slamming Toyota for lavishing massive campaign donations on Republicans who tried to overturn the 2020 election. I'm not defending Republicans who did that, I do think there is a right of individuals and companies and organizations to donate to whichever candidate they want without getting a big black eye. So is it now the position of the mainstream media that any Republican who took this stance, and it's like two-thirds of House Republicans, so we're talking about a whole lot of people here, whatever their motivation may have been. And yes, it was certainly a factor. And yes, it gets intertwined with all of these other things, the riot at the Capitol, Donald Trump is continuing to insist, as he just did with an interview, uh, online interview with Bill O'Reilly, that the election was stolen and all that. I get it. But whatever happened to the principle of, you know, in a democracy, people can support and companies can support whoever they want. Speaking of Donald Trump, uh, this book by Wall Street Journal reporter Michael Bender has generated like two weeks of news uh, with these scenes about what Trump said, about, you know, um, how demonstrators should be treated, just crack their heads, and just a whole bunch of stuff. Now there's an excerpt in his newspaper, the Wall Street Journal. If I was the editor of the Wall Street Journal, I would say, hey, buddy, the first excerpt comes in my newspaper, and then you can, you know, peddle some of your tidbits to others. And then authors do that all the time. I've done it. You try to generate publicity in more than just the organization you work for. Anyway, the reason I, I bring this up is, is in the new excerpt in the journal, there's an anecdote about Mike Pence, the former vice president, lost it with Donald Trump. There was one occasion, according to this book, when that happened. The book is called, Frankly, We Did Win This Election, The Inside Story of How Trump Lost. It had to do with Pence hiring Corey Lewandowski to join his political action committee, uh, so to keep Corey in the game. Of course, Trump's former campaign manager in 2016. I broke that story, in fact, about... You know, it was a little scooplet about uh, he was joining the Pence pack. And Trump was mad about this. Trump was really mad about it because he felt it made him look weak, according to this book. I don't fully get that. And President Trump threw a crumpled newspaper article at Mike Pence, according to this book. And Pence reminded Trump that Jared Kushner had asked him to hire Corey and they had talked about it over lunch. So Pence, and you you know, there's never been a hint of this in public, picks up the article and throws it back at Trump. An actual war between the president and the vice president of the United States throwing rolled up newspaper copy at each other. He leaned toward the president and pointed a finger a few inches from his chest. We walked you through every detail of this, Pence snarled. We did this for you as a favor, and this is how you respond? You need to get your facts straight. Now, if anything remotely like that happened, it's interesting. Hey, another little Trump tidbit. Um, today on CNN, George Conway, the anti-Trump lawyer, was on New Day, the morning show, 
and was talked about yet another thing from this book or some book. Uh, I think it's the same book that Mike Pompeo, Pence, and Bill Barr had each privately expressed concern about Trump's behavior. Uh, And some of that's come out before. Um, For example, in John Bolton's book, as far as former Secretary of State Pompeo. All right, so Conway's asked about this, and Conway says, you know, he starts talking about Trump's inner circle and their job security. Quote, nothing was ever enough for Donald Trump, says George Conway III. And the reason why it got so out of hand was, you know, people didn't push back at the interim steps. They acceded to some of his desires and wishes in certain ways. And Barr was the biggest, one of the biggest people humoring Trump. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Not mentioned in this exchange on CNN is his wife, Kellyanne Conway, who was the White House counselor uh, for almost all four years. And remember, she resigned in the last couple of months uh, of the general election. And I guess CNN didn't ask him about it, and it's just kind of hung in the air when he starts saying, you know, these people care more about their job security than challenging the president in private, and I'll just leave it there. All right, number one is Afghanistan. Uh, president Biden defended his decision yesterday. He took a lot of questions from reporters um, on the decision to withdraw the remaining U.S. forces from Afghanistan by August 31st, that's just the other next month, all those troops will be out. There was one question that really caught my eye because it ticked off the president. And, you know, every time Joe Biden meets the president, I shouldn't say every time, but frequently, when he takes a number of questions, there seems to be one question that gets his back up. It was CNN's Caitlin Collins uh, when they had the summit with Putin. Why do you have confidence that Putin will change his behavior? And he just went off on her. So this one came from John Decker, former Fox News reporter who's now with Gray Television. Uh, And this is after Biden had given a long speech saying, you know, we've got to get out of Afghanistan and here's why, and I'll come back to that. Mr. President, do you trust the Taliban, sir? You could see immediately that Biden was irritated. He snapped. Is that a serious question? And Decker says, it absolutely is a serious question. Do you trust the Taliban? No, I do not, Biden said. No, I do not trust the Taliban. His voice was rising. He was getting pretty hot. And there was just this sort of awkward silence. So then Decker jumps in. Will you amplify your answer why you don't trust the Taliban? He's looking for a better soundbite. It's a silly question, Biden said. Do I trust the Taliban? No. But I trust the capacity of the Afghan military, he says, to stand up against Taliban attacks. So the thing is here, it's funny. There was a time in American politics when this was, would have just dominated the news. You know, I mean, we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years now. And just as, the, just as the Iraq War dominated the news for so many years under George W. Bush, and of course it was under Bush after 9-11 that we went into Afghanistan. Uh, and what Biden is basically saying is, you know, there's no any further point in our keeping American troops there. And that's controversial. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, And he made, I thought, Biden made a a very eloquent case for his position. He's been critical of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan for some time. He was as vice president. He could not persuade Barack Obama to do what he is now doing as POTUS, which is withdraw the remaining U.S. troops. So the problem here is the Taliban, as the U.S. forces are withdrawn, and a lot of these forces already have been withdrawn, are making military gains. And I, for one, will not be surprised if the Taliban once again end up taking over that country, the country they ran in 2001 when they were harboring Osama bin Laden. But Biden says this, let me ask those who want us to stay, how many more, how many 
thousands more American daughters and sons are you willing to risk? And how long would you have them stay? That's a very potent political question. And the polls show that both Republicans and Democrats want out of Afghanistan after two decades. And you know who also wanted out of Afghanistan? Donald J. Trump. In fact, um, Trump was the one who made the deal. There was supposed to be um, you know, negotiations between the Taliban and the Afghan government. That never happened. The pullout was supposed to happen in May. Biden actually extended it for a few months so he could re- uh, review it. But he has the same position as Trump. Let's get out. Remember, Trump ran against endless wars. Um, so there was some back and forth at the presser about the thousands of Afghans, uh, translators and others who helped us. And yes, we're trying to evacuate them. Yes, we're trying to help them. Uh, Biden's position is this. We went into Afghanistan not to do nation building. We did end up doing nation building and failing at it, frankly. But we went there for two reasons. To go after bin Laden and to try to end Afghanistan's status as a haven for global terrorism. Uh, And now, he says, after 20 years, it's the right and responsibility of Afghan people alone to decide their future. And he's right about that. I mean, the the U.S. can't play. I mean, it's a war that can never be won. And then Biden made the point, after some further uh, skeptical questioning from journalists, no nation has ever unified Afghanistan. No nation. Empires have gone there and not done it. Uh, of course, there was the British occupation of, of uh, Afghanistan in the 19th century and the Soviet uh, occupation of Afghanistan uh, in the late 70s. Uh, they eventually had to leave. That failed. This has failed. Um, and it's just, you know, I'm concerned about what happens after we leave. But is it really fair? to our people to stay there is just kind of a police-keeping force. There, will be, there would be continued casualties. People would get killed. And what are we accomplishing? I mean, Biden went through the thing is that when he was vice president in 2014, the military asked for one more year and we'll stabilize the situation. Same thing in 2015. And it goes on and on and on. It's like you're never allowed to leave because some terrible thing might happen. Uh, now, here's somebody with a, with a contrary point of view, National Review editor Rich Lowry. You know, it's funny, the American people overwhelmingly support this pullout. But the coverage from the time that Biden first announced it has been skeptical because there are a lot of war hawks and Council on Foreign Relations types in the mainstream media, and a lot of media give great deference to that. And there are a lot of retired generals who you, know, you often see on the various cable news networks, and they... You know, they never want to leave. They want to stay, keep a U.S. military presence in all these places. And there is a question about what happens if it does once again become a haven for terrorism. And Biden says, oh, we, we will um, deal with that. We're giving them $3 billion. But the question is, you know, who's going to be in charge of spending it? We'll deal with that by launching remote attacks. But it's pretty hard to do from thousands of miles away. So Lowry writes in National Review, perhaps the Afghan government and its forces will prove more resilient than many expect. But if the country continues its slide toward chaos or worse, the Taliban rapidly take Kabul, Joe Biden's decision will look like an amateurish, unforced error by a man who prides himself on his foreign policy experience and acumen. With his top military leadership opposed and credible warnings that Kabul could fall within months, I'm not disputing that, and yes, the top military is opposed because the Pentagon wants to continue to conduct this war. It's not uh, a war in which, you know, we're constantly bombing the country or troops are constantly engaged in combat. It's a different kind of war. 
Um, basically, Lowry acknowledges Trump wanted to do it. Biden is doing it. Um, the U.S. will continue, continue to provide, quote, over-the-horizon support from a distance, says Biden. And Lowry says, look, that is likely a pipe dream. Nothing about Biden's poorly thought-out drawdown lends any more credibility to it. The Allies are leaving. The British, uh, Boris Johnson says he'll pull out as well. With the administration anxious to get the Turks to stay to secure Kabul airport, without which we won't be able to maintain our embassy. You know, there are no good options. It's as simple as that. If we stay there, uh, we're spending more and more and more money and putting the lives of more Americans at risk with no reasonable hope of a different outcome. If we pull out, it could well fall to the Taliban. It could well become a haven for terrorism. There really is just no good option at this point. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number two. Biden is issuing an executive order today that has a whole bunch of things in it. But the thing that caught my eye is he's encouraging federal agencies to crack down on the big tech companies. It shows you how much of a big issue this has gotten to be. Uh, They are growing through mergers and they have competitive advantage by leveraging uh, all the consumer data they collect about you and me and everybody else. And so Biden wants to put the brakes on this. And it really is targeting Facebook. Amazon, Apple, Google, according to people uh, speaking to the New York Times. We'll see the details today. This order will tell federal agencies that approve mergers that they should scrutinize the tech industry's practices more closely. And it will encourage the Federal Trade Commission to write rules limiting how tech giants use consumer data to try to build up their own uh, profits and prospects at the expense of often smaller competitors. The order is Biden's latest acknowledgement of concerns that the tech giants have obtained outsized market power, becoming gatekeepers to commerce, communications, and culture. That is true. I mean, they are tremendously, tremendously powerful. But here's the thing. The executive order doesn't really accomplish much because you've got these agencies like the FTC and the FCC. They're independent agencies. I mean, the president appoints the commissioners, but they're split between the parties. And they have to use existing laws. They can't just because Biden says, hey, get tough, doesn't mean they can. As the Times points out, these laws have hardly changed since they were adopted. They they date to a period before the Internet was the ubiquitous force it is in global life. So it's more of a statement, I think, of intent, almost like a brushback pitch against Mark Zuckerberg, against Google, against Jack Dorsey, against Jeff Bezos. Um, Biden will also encourage the FCC to reinstitute the so-called net neutrality rules. You know, those are the rules, so it's a complicated debate, uh, barring Internet providers from blocking certain content or slowing down delivery in order to allow, let its best clients pay more to have faster content. And what happened is that was net neutrality was the policy of the Obama administration. It was rolled back under Trump. Now Biden wants to reinstate it. That's the problem with executive orders. It's a temporary fix. It's not a law passed by Congress and signed by the president. So whatever Biden does here can be easily reversed by the next president. And speaking of tech, uh, we talked a lot on the podcast yesterday about uh, Donald Trump filing this suit against Google, Facebook, and Twitter for basically banning him. He did an online interview with Bill O'Reilly. And in that interview, Trump said, These are bad people. They're bad people and they're doing bad things. And they're really hurting our nation. That may be in the process of destroying our nation. We're not going to let that happen. O'Reilly, their defense is going to be that you incited the Capitol riot. How will your attorneys handle that? Trump, well, it's very easy. Number one, I didn't. 
<laughs> Number two, they did a whole big report and investigation in Congress at least two weeks ago, and they didn't even mention my name. All right, let me just pause there. That is true. Um, it was a bipartisan committee investigation, and they had, it was an informal agreement not to examine Trump's role in order to maintain uh, a bipartisan support. Uh, and that was the one that looked at basically how law, law enforcement from the Capitol Police and others handled the right. It wasn't an exoneration of Trump. It wasn't that he was so insignificant. It was just a political deal, basically. And uh, then he goes on to say that uh, there was a big rally. Nobody likes to talk about that. They were, in my opinion, because of election fraud, the fraudulent election of 2020. That will be a case that will be easy. So now Trump's going to go in and say he shouldn't have been banned by Twitter and Facebook. This makes it even more of a legal long shot. Because the election was stolen with their help, because they censored him. I don't know. Uh, I hope he's got some good lawyers. All right, number three is on COVID. And um, everybody's starting to get a little nervous now about COVID. I mean, we're in a really good situation, even though we as a country have not reached the 70% um, fully vaccinated, or at least one dose vaccinated. But we are at about 67%. This is for people over 18 which obviously is the most vulnerable population, about 67%. But then there's this great disparity, as I've mentioned before, between red states and blue states, Trump states and Biden states, and so forth. Well, you have Pfizer now, Pfizer along with Moderna and J&J, you know, one of the three main vaccine makers, coming out and saying publicly that they are going, that the company is going to seek approval for a booster shot in the next few weeks, going to ask the FDA to approve this, saying that people who already got the Pfizer vaccine and who feel like, you know, they're protected, they don't have to wear masks, they can go out. Uh, and it is true that, you know, the odds, they may get the virus, but the odds of it being serious or they having to be hospitalized are almost infinitesimally small. And that's a good thing. But uh, Pfizer says, you know what, it would really be good if they got a vaccine booster shot six to 12 months after being fully immunized. But HHS comes out and says, uh, no way, Americans have been fully vaccinated, do not need a booster shot at this time. So it's a rare disagreement between a major pharmaceutical company and the Biden administration. The CDC, the FDA, the NIH, uh, all say, well, we need more research and so forth and science. And so on. So I'm not sure. I mean, I feel like the people at Pfizer know a lot about this. And, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, as you do with uh, not just uh, flu shots, but, you know, when you get, uh, when you're a kid and you get measles shots and chicken pox shots, and then sometimes you need a booster. Uh, I don't think it would be terrible. But Pfizer said it's going to submit data showing that a booster at six months, which would be a third shot, caused antibody levels to shoot up five to ten times higher than what you got from the original two shots. Moderna says it already had similar data, which was announced in May. So we may be having, heading down that path. I do know the, the markets went down yesterday, and there's a certain amount of nervousness, especially about this Delta variant. So I, it's too soon for me to even have an informed opinion on it, but it's rare to see um, the federal government and its health agencies openly at odds with, you know, one of the companies that produced a miracle, a scientific miracle uh, that I just wish more people would take um, among those who, for whatever reason, haven't gotten around to it, don't like the idea, think it's too risky, don't trust the government, don't trust the media, whatever. I wish more people would take one of these vaccines. Number four.
I mentioned on the podcast yesterday, uh, it had just become official before I sat down at the microphone, that the Tokyo Olympics, because of COVID concerns, everything seems to revolve around COVID these days, no fans, no spectators. They're going to have the entire Olympics, which was, of course, postponed from last year, without anybody sitting in the stands. So you know who this is a problem for? NBC. NBC pays millions and millions of dollars for the rights every two years to broadcast the uh, Olympics. And now um, they're going to have to do it without anybody cheering in the stands. I remember this came up, you know, when when the major sports leagues in this country came back and then they didn't allow any fans in. You're watching baseball games and some... Networks played, you know, phony crowd noise and others just let it be silent. So um, Bob Costas, uh, who I've interviewed several times, you know, one of the biggest name, most experienced sportscasters who spent decades with NBC. He was the lead announcer on 11, 11 Olympic Games. He's now a CNN contributor. He says it's a hell of a challenge they face, referring to his former network. He says that, you know, the atmosphere, the energy coming from fans is really a key element of why people watch the Olympics. And now it could really hurt the ratings after NBC has spent all this money. Now, says Costas, uh, does this mean people won't watch? Of course they'll watch. But will they watch with the same kind of numbers than if this had, had the usual texture? Probably not. And I don't know. You, you can mic up the players and... Uh, there's other things you can do, but I don't know that NBC can do a hell of a lot of this. Another impact of COVID, which, you know, came surging back in Japan, which Japan had a pretty good record, but it went up and down and up and down. And now at the worst possible time for Tokyo, um, the virus has come surging back. All right. Number five, Naomi Osaka is on the cover of Time magazine. She wrote an essay talking more about her decision to bail out of the French Open, also skipping Wimbledon, but she is coming back for the Tokyo Olympics. And one of the reasons she wanted to play, obviously being from Japan, is she wants to play in front of the hometown fans. Well, she'll be doing that virtually through television, but obviously, based on what I just said, Japanese who would go to those uh, tennis matches will not be allowed now to do that in any event. She talked pretty candidly in this piece. And by the way, this is not the same as holding a news conference when you have a carefully edited piece, but I'm glad that she's speaking out and it was smart of time to put her on the cover. Why did she uh, make such a big issue about going to the required news conferences, the French Open, which resulted in a $15,000 fine and finally her pulling out? And talking about her struggles with depression, which really kind of stunned the sports world. She said this was, uh, she had to exercise self-care and preservation of my mental health. Athletes are humans, said Osaka, and they should be given, quote, the right to take a mental break from media scrutiny on a rare occasion without being subject to strict sanctions. Well, I was very critical of her blowing off the press because I take the position that the reason that Naomi Osaka made $50 million last year, or the figure may even be higher, from endorsements is because she gets all this worldwide publicity. And if you're going to do that, you have some obligation to talk to the press. And by the way, when she talks about media scrutiny, you ever watch these press conferences, not just in tennis, but in, as an example? The questions aren't really tough. You know, how do you feel about facing Serena? How's your backhand? Are you worried about losing the match? I mean, you know, a lot of the, the athletes give kind of, you know, boilerplate answers. And it's just kind of a ritual that the, the Tennis Association insists on. Anyway, she does say, and here's the interesting part. She felt pressured to talk publicly about her depression 
uh, for this reason. In my case, I felt a great amount of pressure to disclose my symptoms, frankly, because the press and the tournament did not believe me when she made a reference to mental health originally. I do not wish that on anyone and hope we can enact measures to protect athletes, especially the fragile ones. I also do not want to have to engage in the scrutiny of my personal medical history ever again. So I asked the press for some level of privacy and empathy the next time we beat, meet. Excuse me. Um, you know, she also said she loves the press. She gets along with the press. We always enjoyed an amazing relationship with the media, she says. I love the press. I do not love all press conferences. But again, you know, it's, it's not exactly an inquisition. Uh, but look, I'm glad she's speaking out. A couple other uh, quotes here. Um, she says she's naturally introverted. She doesn't court the spotlight. Well, you know, you went into professional tennis, you, you're becoming a star athlete, and you are the you are the spokesperson for all of these big name brands. You kind of are courting the spotlight. You just want to court the spotlight in your terms. Again, I don't mean to be too harsh on her. She's a tremendous athlete, incredibly accomplished young woman. And the fact that she has struggled with depression since 2018, since that match when she beat Serena Williams, uh, when Serena was penalized for, you know, vigorously protesting uh, calls by the refs, uh, had to be a lot of pressure on her. I have to push myself to speak up for what I believe to be right, says Osaka, but that often comes at a cost of great anxiety. I feel uncomfortable being the spokesperson or face of athlete mental health as it's still so new to me and I don't have all the answers. Well, you know what? None of us have all the answers. And it is a reminder that athletes are human. You know, they get such a huge buildup. It's the same thing with sort of movie stars, TV stars, other kinds of celebrities. You know, they get so much great press and we think of them as being, you know, the people who are up on some kind of Mount Olympus. Olympus. And it turns out, you know, they have problems in their personal life. They get married. They get divorced. Uh, sometimes they develop drug problems. Um, they suffer from depression. And overall, you know, leaving aside the spat about how much you should have to talk to the press at these tournaments... The fact that Naomi Osaka, even though she felt pressured into it, even though she's clearly uncomfortable in that role, I think it's a good thing, a healthy thing. When other celebrities, you know, people like William Styron, Mike Wallace, the late Mike Wallace, others talked about their battles with depression, it sends a message to people who aren't famous, who just, you know, have ordinary jobs and ordinary lives, that they're not alone. Depression is a scourge, it's a disease, and I think it's kind of brave of her, of her I think, now, to further bring this up in the form of her Time Magazine essay. Once again, hope you got a great summer weekend coming up. Hope you have a chance to catch Media Buzz on Sunday morning on Fox. Uh, we're working on a whole bunch of uh, things now, um, including the Trump lawsuit against the big tech companies, including the sort of journalistic battle over patriotism in July 4th. I was off for a few days, as you may recall, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, but... It really got to be quite a heated debate about the American flag and patriotism and the Constitution and the founders. We'll get into that and a whole lot more, and we'll see you back here Monday with more Busby. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.